<laughs> I say it like that because there's this uh, Faith No More song called We Care A Lot that the title always reminds me of. Yeah, keep explaining. This is great content. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Boster, uh, can you see the Aurora Borealis from San Diego, California? You're Cassidy Robinson, mm-hmm. recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. You you always do that. You always fucking introduce me and then ask an open-ended question and then get pissed when I forget to introduce you. Cassidy Robinson, host of the show. Mm-hmm. No, I cannot see the Aurora Borealis. It's just a fucking zoom filter. It's a zoom filter. I'm trying to keep you on your toes. You seemed a little distracted. Um, You're fucking distracted. <laughs> <laughs> In this episode, we are going to be reviewing the Netflix release, I Care A Lot. And for the streaming homework, which you last assigned, we will be talking about, was it 2019's Queen and Slim? Yeah, I think it came yeah. out uh, just before the world went crazy. <clears throat> yeah, it was like late 2019, and I meant to see it and didn't. So now it's on HBO Max. We were able to watch that, and that's what we're going to talk about. I guess here at the at the top of the show, uh, I read a tweet. It was a provocative tweet, and oh, no. I just are wanted... You gonna, are you going to give me the same spiel my mom gave me? I don't know what spiel your mom gave you, but if it's not related to movies, probably not. Oh, no. All right. (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. My my mom, she's not on Twitter. She's not really on any social media, Uh but one of my brothers is, and he, like, ratted out some tweets of mine, and so we had a long talk about some stuff. Oh, my! I don't think my parents know my Twitter yet, so that's good. Um, (laughs) I don't think they would care. They... They probably already expect the worst. The fun thing um, is, it's not even like one of my gross ass joke tweets. It's it was like a political thing, and right, right. politically speaking, me and my mom, I logically lean up pretty well. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was just like the dumbest conversation ever. Let's go imagine. to your tweet. <laughs> so the tweet in question is not one that I tweeted out. It's by at uh, Cheap Trick Rules Jess Harville. Says, and I've seen versions of this, uh, of this, uh, uh, idea kind of floated out there. There's kind of amongst the discourse at the moment, but this is one of the worst trends of the past 10 years is easily this idea that every dumb thing you love needs to be canonized and vocally respected by the wider world, especially stuff you loved as a kid slash teen. It's absolutely okay to enjoy inane bullshit. Not everything needs legitimacy. So I just want to like get that, like, bounce that idea off of you. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I I mean, I basically agree. I don't know. I To me, this is kind of the same. Because some people could read this as elitist, like, it's not, it's okay if something isn't high art. You don't have to pretend like, you know, the, your the favorite I, nerd thing is, should be discussed at the same level as... I don't know, Kurosawa or something. To, to me, I kind of interpret the tweet as like, 
it, to me, it's kind of the same thing as like a, the thought of a guilty pleasure, right? Like right. guilty pleasure kind of shouldn't exist. If you enjoy the thing, you enjoy it. It's okay if it's not something you want to talk about with everybody, but that doesn't mean it's bad or dumb. But I, I don't know. I, I, See, yes. I think you, I think you could kind of read it either way. And I don't know this person. It just ended up in my feed somehow. See, I view it as the opposite of elitism, as like, just enjoy the things you enjoy, and it's fine if nobody else cares. Yes and no. I, th- I think the meaning of the tweet is, because that's the other side of the argument, I think is the, you know, it's almost a meme now, but the just let people enjoy stuff meme. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't have to criticize everything, which, you know, not exactly what we don't do on the show. But well, I mean, this is a this is a we are doing criti- critical podcast. I don't know. Sure. Mo- I mean, it's a movie. Sort of. It's a we're, we talk. We're reviewing things. We're 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 considering value judgment, things like that. I mean, it's part of what it is. But in in all, I'm more interested in the conversation than the grade. Yeah, actually, something that's helped me on this podcast, uh, like when I'm talking about movies, is getting that idea of it being like a review air quotes out of my head and being like, let's just talk about the movie. Right. And I think that's helped open me up to viewing the movies like a little, a little differently than I was before. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's absolutely okay to, I don't know. I, the way I'm hearing it, the way I read it is like, if I'm, should I read it again? Yeah. Read it again. Says one of the worst trends of the past ten years is easily this idea that every dumb thing you love needs to be canonized and vocally respected by the wider world, yeah. especially stuff you loved as a kid or teen. It's absolutely okay to enjoy inane bullshit. Not everything needs legitimacy. Yeah. Legitimacy so I, is in quotes. To, to and me, my joke answer to that was, I, for one, will not be satisfied until LACMA or the Met does a month-long retrospective on Disney's Gummy Bears. Yeah. Great. Uh, very snark. Underrated tweet, by the way. I, <laughs> yes. Trust me, I'm the king of underrated tweets because they're mine. Uh, and at BC Cassidy, at Keith Foster Kid. Yeah, I would love, I mean, here's the thing. If he's not getting himself in trouble with his parents, then you can. (laughs) (laughs) He also does some jokes. Uh, Um, Sometimes. Mostly I I just scream at the government and talk about the X-Files. Let me back it up. Let me back it up. Let me clean the slate a little bit. I think the way that I was going to approach this question was sort of as a challenge. Um, And I didn't prepare you for it because I don't have an answer for it either. But I just want to see, like, what we come up with under the pressure. Mm-hmm. What is some inane bullshit you liked as a kid, a la the Gummy Bears, yeah. uh, that you want to see canonized into, you know, some higher form of, you know, like, uh, academia or whatever, you know? Well, I think, so I think the best example of this has kind of already been done. Right. It happens uh, about every 12 years. Uh, so, I, I, to me, like, the, the best example of the opposite of this, Batman the Animated Series, right? Okay. Uh, it was a, a cartoon that was just, like, 
ripe for our generation and it actually has some really sophisticated plots and great character work and just re- it, it, it like really interesting premises without dumbing it down mm-hmm. uh even down to like the art direction was fantastic and that has been sort of like people have gone back and been like you know what that was kind of fucking way more awesome than we deserved as kids and so i think that is an example of something like maybe was underappreciated at the time but has now been canonized and legitimized, right? Yeah. I, I feel think like there's people always said it was pretty good. I mean, it won an Emmy for Heart of Heart of Glass or what well, no, that's Blondie's song. What's the uh the Heart, Heart of, of Ice? Ice? Yeah. Yeah. I think it won a couple Emmys. But yes, uh but when I think of something that is like, I don't need this to be canonized or whatever mm. or legitimized, um I think of like some of the dumb teenage male power fantasy shit that I, you know, like uh, Dragon Ball Z or Power Rangers or whatever. Like, to me, there's not much there beyond what you get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's fun. Um, You know, especially Dragon Ball Z, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff going on. There's (laughs) crazy power levels and yelling and and kung fu blast. And, you know, it's all sorts of whatever. Uh, but it doesn't need to be anything more than that. And we we don't need discourse. On, I I don't know. I'm sure there probably is. Like you know, there is like the the legend of the um the monkey thing or whatever. yeah the, of Goku yeah. and stuff that like that it's based on that Dragon Ball Z or uh, Dragon Ball was based off. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there is more there, I guess. But I we don't. I we would don't gu- need- I guarantee you there are dissertations written about both of those properties. Now, I don't uh, think that they're trying to like yeah. elevate them as being something other than what they were, but I I think there's, you know, in a cultural context, especially seeing that they're both based in Japan, um, you know, the uh, Power Rangers come from that whole like uh, what is what are those like there's a million of those shows in Japan. Oh yeah, they're yeah, based where on they Power were, Man. Yeah, where they were like uh, Sentai soldiers or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. It was giant Senpai, robots. And the, yeah, it kind of was an outgrowth of, like, the kaiju thing and the giant robot thing kind of meshed. Um, but, I mean, yeah, that, okay, so that's that's part of the thing, right? It, right. I mean, if if you talk about anything, And Power Rangers, by the way, is nothing but utter nonsense and bullshit. Yeah. Like, but, but, it is pure cotton candy for the brain. There is nothing to glean from it past bright, flashy colors and... Some not very good uh, fight sequences. Well, so I think there's different levels of discourse you can have on something, right? You can yeah. talk about the the thing itself um, mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever themes there might be or, or whatever. Or you can talk about, like, the history of something and the influence of something on pop culture, which in, always in the case of something like Power Rangers is probably a much more interesting conversation. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I think – and I think that might be where this urge comes from. Uh, uh, you know, anything that you like, you can deep dive into and and find out cool shit about it. And, right. You and know, the toys that made us and, like, there's a lot yeah. of really interesting documentaries on inane bullshit just, you know, giving a cultural contact. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is – okay, for example – yeah, we're talking a lot around – I'm talking a lot around the actual questions that I don't yeah. have to answer. For, for example, 
Um, back in the day when John Waters made his his dirty ass disgusting movies in Baltimore with his friends, mm. um, just trying to freak people out and be as obscene as possible. Yeah. People thought of it as trash cinema or midnight movie fair or whatever, and it was all just kind of seen as, like, edgy for the sake of edgy and, like, obviously stupid and dumb. Mm-hmm. Cut to however many years later, and, uh, you know, John Waters has, like, mainstream success with Hairspray and, you know, and uh, was a thing with Johnny Depp, Crybaby and whatnot, Serial Mom. He becomes a legitimate director, in air quotes. And also, he like, the LBGT movement and, like, the advancement of, like, the punk era and all these things kind of add this context that didn't exist for those movies at the time. Or those movies helped create that context more, more uh, uh, accurately. Okay. And so now you can buy Female Trouble and, and uh, 10,000 Maniacs in the Criterion Collection. Sure. You know. And is there anything like that from your youth or doesn't even have to be within your growing up? Maybe you saw something you shouldn't have seen or whatever, uh, or is before your time. But is there anything you can think of that right now nobody takes seriously that you want to be taken seriously in that way? Uh-huh. Um, hmm. Man. Uh... Because it happens to everything. You know, at a point in time. A movie like Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, those were just uh, exploitation movies you saw at the drive-in. Yeah. And now yeah. people like write whole books about those movies. I'm trying to think of something that I enjoy that is trashy enough that I wouldn't feel that need, but like... But is there anything that you wouldn't be surprised in 10 years people are like, actually... Such and such is was a lot smarter and underappreciated than than people thought of it at the time. I feel like I have maybe it's something right now. Yeah, I I feel like I definitely have something like at the at the tip of my brain, but I just can't quite think of it. Do you have any examples? While I while I think, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, tried to think about this, and I thought maybe you would say something that would spring my my deal. That's why I, I think went in part of it is like. There's so much niche audience for everything that it's like, right. I, I, I mean, nothing would surprise me thinking of something that is like falls under that criteria. I mean, I feel like that's kind of my whole life yeah. uh, <laughs> is just like absorbing pop culture that nobody should care about. And I do a lot. And, you know, luckily there were enough fucking people that grew up in half broken homes who are mm -hmm. clinging to nostalgia uh, like it's their lives. Um, right. Yeah, I, I can't think of any specific examples of something like that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Have honestly, you ever had a conversation with somebody? And the only person I could think of you having this conversation would be me. But have you ever had a conversation with somebody where you're talking about something and it was in your mind a well-respected thing that everyone liked and appreciated and everyone around you kind of gave you a WTF face. Like what, why are you talking about this? Like it's a thing. Again, I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure that I, I've also kind of let go of that part of my brain that like needs people to like the thing that I'm like into. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, at a point in time, people would have said professional wrestling was like, low yeah. tier bottom of the barrel kind of thing but now i feel like even that 
now there's kind of more of this appreciation of it as an art form in and of itself. I think people are just kind of, in People general, don't even, like, have those arguments about whether it's real or not anymore. Now it's yeah. all about how well is it written, how well is it set up, like, blah, blah, blah. They talk about I, it more I, like fiction. Well, I think... I think in general, uh, the w- the way the internet has affected popular culture is, I, I think people have just kind of let go of their fucking hangups on stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, growing up, uh, I remember, uh, you know, we were in- really into Pokemon, and oh, yeah. I used to feel like I had to justify, like, we watched the fucking cartoon, and we were probably too old. Very much uh, so, yeah. And... <laughs> I felt like if I told people I was into Pokemon, I had to, like, justify it. Like, no, 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 just the games, man. The games are actually pretty fucking cool. Right, right. You know, and and I, I guess I feel like I've kind of let go of that part of my brain that I'm just like, I think that's just part of getting older is you stop feeling like you have to justify the stuff you like because life's too fucking short. And if you enjoy something, just enjoy it. Like... I definitely agree more with that meme of just let people enjoy things, even if it's trash. Like, I fucking rail on Zack Snyder and the Snyder Cut all goddamn day on Twitter. But if people genuinely enjoy it, like, good for them. I I think my counter to the just let people enjoy things meme is there is just as much of a validity in saying just let people criticize things. Yeah, I, th- like, I, mean, I think that's true, just too. Just because like, you enjoy something doesn't mean it's beyond criticism. Yes, I do agree with that. Like, And rather than shutting down the conversation and being like, huh, I don't like what you said, engage the conversation and say, yeah. okay, well, you think this about it, but in these contexts, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's what spurred that me- that tweet. I, I guess what I mean is when I say just let people enjoy things is like, yes, if we are going to have that conversation and somebody... If I come at someone with all my points about why I hate Zack Snyder and they're like, yeah, I just think it looks cool. That's valid. That is a valid response. Like, uh, you know, just digging the aesthetics of something is enough. Yeah. I So, I don't know. I, I think it goes both ways. I think sometimes critically, I think sometimes critically the conversation needs to be open to it's just cool or I just like it. And I think. That the fan, the fan attitude needs to be open to criticism of like, well, you know, it could be better if we did this or, you know, what, like you said, what's the conversation about it? Yeah. All right. All right. I don't know if we can, if we said anything about anything, but. I I think Gummy Bears is a prime example. Uh, I, I really liked the cartoon Inhumanoids. When I was a kid. And I don't think that it's bad. I just think nobody fucking watched it. Yeah, I so actually have I, no idea what you're talking about. Th- yeah, I just wanted to throw out some actual answers so people don't think we're trying to cop out. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's talk about a little bit of movie news. A few a few items popped up recently. Um, we'll, we'll try and uh, get through these quickly. Just do a couple here because we kind of had a long segment there. Um, Stephen King's The Talisman is getting... A series adaptation from Steven Spielberg and the Duffer Brothers from Netflix. The Talisman was a fantasy story that he co-wrote with uh, Peter Straub. 
And it involves like, uh, you know, multiple universes, like a kid who has like a dying mother. And then like he finds a talisman and like ends up in an alternate reality where his mother is the queen of a fantasy world. And, you know, it goes into some shit. Um, I know of this story because this is my when my dad went through his Stephen King phase in the 80s, as everyone's dad went through a Stephen King phase in the 80s. He really latched onto this book for whatever reason. And forever and ever, he always said, like, I can't wait for them to do a talisman movie. But, you know, for a long time, he didn't think they'd be able to because of the special effects needed. Well, but, apparently. Uh, but now Steven's- that's obviously not a problem. Yeah, apparently Steven Spielberg has had the rights to the Talisman for Yeah, this has been ever. in like uh this has been in like production limbo for decades. This is yeah. one of those. Um in general, I I mean I just I don't know. I'm not really familiar with the Talisman. Um mm-hmm. uh I think it sounds interesting. Um I'm interested to see what the Duffer brothers can do outside of Stranger Things. Um, obviously right. very Stephen King influenced. And very Spielberg uh, influenced. Yeah, so I, I think the formula makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm, it sounds cool. I'm into it. Um, I know sometimes Netflix, especially like kind of fantasy stuff, I, sometimes I think they can kind of shortchange some ideas. Like, uh, I, we talked with, uh, also a friend of the show, Todd, about this on Twitter a little bit. And uh, we he brought up the um, Lock and Key series on Netflix, which uh, I loved the books. I thought the mm-hmm. books were so good. Wasn't into the TV adaptation because I felt like they were trying to Harry Potterify it. Uh, they were oh. they were trying to like make it YA when it's definitely a little more mature and a little darker and a little <laughs> more violent and fucked up than that. So like, I guess it just kind of. I mean, I, I'm not super attached to the source material, um, so I'm interested to see what they come up with. I just hope that Netflix, you know, is true to whatever the source material is. Yeah, and I suspect with the uh, with the Duffer Brothers being involved, they're big King fans. I think I'm not worried so much about them changing things. Um, not that I even read the book, so if they did, I wouldn't know. Uh, but... I think well, again, I'm, I'm more uh, concerned on. with the production budget and what they do with it. Because the difference between a TV show and cinema, as cinematic as TV has been getting over the last 10, 20 years, um, is that a TV show, scenes are written for a specific purpose, and that's usually a push plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Because of that, you get less scenes of just soaking in the the scene, soaking in the atmosphere and and uh, world building, and you get a lot more scenes of people in rooms talking about the plot. Um, just by yeah. the nature of the art form, I'm not saying that as a as a good thing or a bad thing. That's just what the difference between the two things are. And I I, I would be I'd feel a little sad if this I'm, big I'm, fantasy I'm... epic turned into a bunch of people huddled into poorly lit rooms talking i mean i yes especially historically speaking you're correct but i do think that is i think tv is definitely getting away from that with things like the mandalorian and game of thrones and the witcher like they're pushing it yeah yeah they're definitely seeing like what can we do with tv uh as a cinematic medium versus uh you know what can we get away with right and 
And I think that makes a big difference. And I also think that I think that the advantage of TV versus a movie is you can really play with a character arc. You can really have um, you can really do a lot with the characters that you might not necessarily have the time to do in a single feature. So, you know, I think and I think that's why we're seeing a lot of books being adapted as TV shows is not not because uh, it's convenient for filming, but because it's like there's so much in a book and there's so much more character development that you can do in a book that I I think the idea of a TV series makes sense because it's like yeah, books that, are just more drawn out. They're more – That seems to be the trade-off, right, is with TV – you can split things up into chapters a lot like books are written. Yeah. And you can cram in more details that from the book. But yeah, I think historically the trade-off has been you get more plot and you get more stuff. Uh, but you sometimes don't get the budget or just the, I don't know, that, that kind of um, creating a world in your mind aspect of a movie you just don't get that as much with TV. Yeah, Even fantasy I, I, television has episodes where it's like, okay, we need to explain somebody's backstory in this episode. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think that's, a, you know, especially when you're ad- adapting a book, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I just, right. uh, I do agree with you. I, I hope that if it's this big, you know, fantasy epic, I do hope that they give it the uh, the budget and, you know, uh, but again, with when you're talking about Steven Spielberg and the Duffer Brothers, like they're going to be throwing money at this thing, so I'm right. not too worried about that. I, I think this sounds like a cool project. I'm into it. Okay, next story: J.J. Abrams is producing a new Superman film written by Tanahesi. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Tanahesi Coates. Tanahesi Coates. You apparently somebody you're you're aware of. Uh yeah, he's a he's a uh, black writer. He wrote a uh, a really cool run on um Black Panther. Um he's been writing Black Panther for the last few years. I think this is the exact type of property that JJ Abrams should work on. Mm-hmm. Um something that is like it doesn't necessarily rely on the puzzle box formula or like the mythology's there. He might so find he a way. Can, if it's being written by somebody else, maybe that's not necessarily a problem, but I just mean like the mythology's there. I think typically JJ Abrams is at his best when he's not the one coming up with it, if right. that makes sense. A, maybe the Star Wars movies he should have had a little less control over and maybe bring in a a, a different writer. And okay. like I think his direction style's cool and good. Um, and I think as a producer, Bad Robot has a pretty, pretty solid good track, track record. record. Yeah. So I think, I think, uh, Superman needs this kind of modern reboot, but I think he'll be able to get the core of the character in a way that, uh, Zack Snyder didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it'll, I think it'll be optimistic without being cheesy. Uh, I, I think this is a slam dunk. This is exactly what I think. J.J. Abrams should be doing. This makes total sense to me. And uh, uh Hesse Coates, uh, I hope I pronounced that right. He He's a fucking great writer. So, um, And he's, you know, familiar with superhero stuff. This is what yeah, they need to it's, do. It's great to hear that he comes from the world of comics. 
Um, that makes me more enthusiastic. Well, he actually kind of came from the world of like TV, and then uh, no, like like books, like literature, and went to comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he's moving to it sounds like movies, which I'm like, yeah, he kind of, I think he can kind of do it all. So all right, um, I'm into it. I think this is exactly what DC needs. They they need to reboot their fucking flagship character in a way that. That gets it away from the Snyder verse bullshit, and you know I I like Henry Cavill in the part, but I think let's get some new blood in there. Well, it and says here in this article that at present there's no director attached or a Superman for that matter. Henry Cavill played Superman in the previous DC extended universe movies. Blah blah blah. We know that. Uh, the fact that Coates says he's been specifically invited into the DCEU suggests Cavill could potentially reprise the role of the film. So it looks like they don't know. Or they're not yeah, saying. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would be cool either way. I think... I, I think never thought Henry the problem with... There was nothing wrong with Henry Cavill as Superman. No, it's all the writing and the direction. Right. Henry Cavill, under the right um, tutelage, would be... I think perfect for the role. He, we just never got to see him do that because he's been in garbage movies. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of of two minds of it. I think let's get away from Snyderverse. Uh, you know, let's just wash that away. But I also like I would like to see Cavill live up to the full potential he has as a Superman. Yeah. And I think, you know, like Wonder Woman has transitioned away from Snyderverse while keeping Gal Gadot. So, I'd be uh, into it either way. Okay, final story, and this one went a little viral online yesterday. Elizabeth Banks to direct Cocaine Bear Thriller for Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Apparently, uh, this is, cocaine, is that all we know? Have you not seen anything about Cocaine Bear? Cocaine uh, Bear not, was literally trending yesterday. So apparently is this is, is based it? on a true story? Uh, Universal is behind Cocaine Bear, which is based on the untitled spec written by Jimmy Warden, uh, inspired by the events that took place in Kentucky in 1985. The true story, as reported in 1985 by the New York Times, was that a 175-pound black bear consumed the contents of a duffel bag filled with more than 70 pounds of cocaine that was dropped from an airplane by a local drug smuggler. Uh, the bear was later found dead of an apparent drug overdose. Uh, yeah, fuck yeah. I don't. I can. <laughs> none. I don't know. None of this makes sense to me. Right. Um, it doesn't need to. But I love. <laughs> I love Lord and Miller's writing style. Uh, uh-huh. I think Elizabeth Banks is great. I think this sounds like a lot of fun. I'm into it. Maybe something more like a like a horror comedy or like a you know something to that effect. Uh, with that team involved. Obviously, the story's ridiculous. And, yeah, I mean, you had me at Cocaine Bear. Yeah. I I don't know what else you need for really, me. Like, you don't need a goddamn thing. Yeah. Co- I mean, it literally, like... The that's poster the ele- sells it. That's the elevator pitch. Yeah. Cocaine Bear. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck yeah. Let's greenlight this shit. Like, we need this as a movie. Okay, so that's movie news. Let's go ahead and get into the reviews of the week. We have a lot to talk about, I think. Oh, do we? Um, I think these are pretty discussion-heavy reviews. We'll see what happens, I guess. But uh, give me the plot synopsis of I Care A Lot. Go ahead. Um, (laughs) 
So uh, I care a lot. Uh, Rosamund Pike plays the main character, Marla Grayson here. And she is someone who has this scam regarding elderly people, declaring them as wards of the state once they, you know, reach certain health um, qualifications. Um, She gets them checked into like a residential care facility and basically assumes control of all of their assets. She's been running this scam and it's been getting her rich. The reason I say it's a scam is because... It's not always in the the elderly person's best interest. Um, right. In this, in this case, almost never. Yeah. She's looking yes. at these people as dollar signs, uh, less, less uh, than, you know, oh, these people genuinely need help and need taken care of. Um, right. So she looks for people that, like, you know, maybe their family's passed away or uh, their family isn't really involved in their lives and they have, you know, a decent amount of money. And so that she can swoop in and claim, um, you know, that they're either being neglected or that they don't know what to do with their own money kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, her and her partner, Fran, played by Isa, Isa Gonzalez, uh, come across this woman who seems a little too good to be true, uh, played by Diane Wiest. Uh, They refer to her as a cherry and swoop her up into their shenanigans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And supposedly she's supposed, the reason they call her a cherry is because supposedly she has no living relatives and she's loaded. Yeah. Uh, Little do they know that when they take control of her assets, she is very lucid and... And has connections to um, some very scary individuals, right. um, uh, not the least of which is uh, Peter Dinklage, who does most of this movie just kind of intimidating people with his swagger. Yeah, so that's the basic setup. We get uh, uh, kind of these two very unlikable characters in Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage uh, trying to kind of out-awful each other. This is kind of a no-good-guys story. Right. Yeah. Because the most sympathetic character here is Diane Weist, who's being taken advantage of. But we even find out she has kind of a dark side. Yeah. Um, We don't know to what extent, but we know that, you know, she's involved in with some pretty unsavory characters out there involved in like Russian oligarchs and crazy mafia and all sorts of stuff, which this is one of those stories of like you fucked with the wrong person, like uh, fuck around and find out kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I guess like the tension of the story or sort of like the, the appeal of this type of crime narrative is you get this battle of the wits between the crime world, the organized crime world and the white collar crime world. And, and also part of this movie is like, uh, kind of an interesting setup with like this, this, uh, weird healthcare scam and like, right. So this uh, is based on a thing that's real. Now I looked this, I looked into this a little bit because I thought surely this can't be legal. Um, John Oliver did a whole segment on it and I advised people to watch his segment on, on caregivers. And um, I think the script might've been based on a specific person that he talks about in that. Oh, interesting. In that uh, segment of this woman from Arizona who was, uh, using her her uh, patience or whatever, um, using their money to buy like hundred dollars stretch pants, 
and limousines and like thousand dollar lunches and all sorts of stuff over the course Jesus. of like over the course of like I don't know, 20 or 15, 10 years or something. She had, after they would pass away, she had a, uh, a storage unit just filled with people's ashes that she wasn't doing anything with for like years and years. Jesus. Um, so yeah, I mean, this I- is a real, this is a thing that is very corruptible. Also, in a lot of states, you don't even need a license to do this thing. Really? Right. That's weird. And there's that no... Seems, that seems like there should be some kind of oversight on it. So there's, there's no, like, government agency that, like, cracks down on this or watches over it. So this is a this is a specific thing that is ripe for abuse and that does happen. Of course, there are good caretaker wards or caretakers or whatever. Yeah, um, I mean, there are, there are people that And it involves, and, and... like, failures of government on many levels to be able to do this. But, I mean... Yeah, and and in this case, uh, that is Rosamund part of the Pike, critique of the movie. In this case, Rosamund Pike is you know particularly she has a network of of uh, like doctors that she'll use. They'll give like yeah, like they'll stretch diagnoses or they'll Bad like judges. flat out make shit up. Yeah. yeah, I actually think the judge in this particular movie, I actually think he was acting in good faith. I think he was just believing. The wrong people, but um, right, right. I they don't, they don't, they never make it look like he's getting a cut or anything. No, and but, I think it's just like he, but he does seem pretty incompetent, I given don't know. how how often um this exact thing keeps happening, and she always comes to him, and and there's been all sorts of people complaining. The movie starts out with. Uh, with Roseman Pike kind of talking about this scheme, and she goes into the details of it, very sort of Goodfellas esque. Mm-hmm. Um, and she even kind of starts off with a very similar thing. So in Goodfellas, uh, Henry Hill says, "You know, all my life, all I ever wanted to be was a gangster," and then talks about like the joys of being in organized crime for the next two and a half hours. And in this case, you have Roseman Pike, and she says basically the same philosophy which is like doing things legitimately is for the weak and the stupid and if you want to get ahead in life you have to be the hunter not the you know not the hunted and it's it's you know a capitalist critique um yes i mean she's not, film she's not wrong but that doesn't make what she does right right uh so and- i think there's something very interesting about that specific thing, and yes. I want to get to that, but I, I also want to let you like. Well, let's... yeah. So what I'm trying to say is, I think the the premise of this movie is a really interesting setup, mm-hmm. and it leads into it's more of a crime movie than I was expecting. Right. I was expecting it to be sort of more of a, a like legalese kind of movie, right? Um, so dark comedy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it ends up kind of just becoming like a straight up uh like heist crime thriller thing. Yeah. Um but I I really think like the backdrop of it is so unique and uh and interesting that that I think that does a lot of the work for the movie. Um I think between that and two very strong leads doing very strong performances in Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of all you need, you know, let right. them vamp it up and go at each other. And like, that's a lot of fun to watch. My big criticism of the movie is that, like you said, it's kind of this battle of the wits. It's kind of this battle of um, 
who's going to come out on top based off who's smarter. And there's a few sort of, I think, unfortunately pulpy kind of movie moments Ooh. that are like, just kind of like dumb <laughs> uh, a, a little bit. Like there's a shootout in a nursing home and I'm sorry, but a nursing home is not going to have an armed fucking guard with a gun. Like that's just ridiculous. But you know, it's a setup for the the action set piece. So sure, right, right, right. Uh, and there, some of the circumstances by which characters escape certain fates are a little like, oh, okay, they're just fucking lucky because that wouldn't happen. Um, right. So there were a few moments like that that kind of took me out of it a little bit. But for the most part, uh, this movie's pretty stylish and pretty slick. And in my mind, this is the kind of movie that. Netflix should do like they're not overreaching in their in their premise it's not like this high concept sci-fi thing it's just sort of a fun uh character piece with two really good actors playing really interesting and very unlikable characters yeah no I, I there's a lot to like here and you you mentioned the performances which are great Rosamund Pike sinks her teeth into this and, you know, we it's, it's kind of a similar character to her character in Gone Girl in that she's always scheming. She's always one step ahead. Yeah, she's the approach incredibly is so efficient um, and terrifying. She's a terrifying yes. person. Um, and she's really, really good at doing that. And I think she actually, in both characters, even though the character is, like, monstrous, um, I think that she does the character work as an actress to justify the internal morals and logic of this character. And so it doesn't seem like she's playing a over-the-top campy villain. She's not twisting her proverbial mustache. No. She actually believes enough in what the character believes to be able to justify her actions, yes, which makes totally. the performance that much better and that much scarier. Um, I give her all the credit for that. Uh, my issue with the film, and yes, I, I do think that like there's some convenient plot stuff and like characters make decisions just so that the plot can keep going and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm sort of fine with that in this this sort of realm of crime fiction. Yeah, um, I mean, it's... And the it tradition is... that it's playing in. Sure, yes. I'm okay. I'll, I'll forgive some of those kind of things like, well, you could have just fucking shot her there, but you didn't. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things I... like that. Uh, it's like, it's like, you know, it's almost like the Dr. Evil, like, let's leave them in an easily escapable kind of thing instead of whatever. Um, but my issue with this is more sort of a thematic hypocrisy that I, I struggle with. And I, this is the conversation I wanted to have with, with you or whoever was willing to listen. Uh, okay. So the, the film is directed and written by Jay Blakeson. And I, th I think that the reason that he writes it the way he does is I think he's playing a game with the audience. And the game is I'm going to write one of the most repugnant evil characters of all time. And okay. 15 minutes in, you're going to hate her. There's you're no way that you're going to like this character. And You're getting to the thing that I was thinking while watching the whole movie. Okay, good. Then maybe we're on the same wavelength here. So, uh, 
he's writing the he writes a character you know it's involved with like elder abuse and is just like ripping off the system all over the place and is just reveling in it and and then i think the game that he's playing is i'm going to introduce this character in such a way and put you in her headspace uh and make you just want to like kill this lady but by the end of the movie you're going to be rooting for her because she's so smart and she's so proficient at what she does that she is better than the criminal world that she's taking on. And that is the subversion of the genre we're doing. Because I think in his logic, and I'm I'm assuming a lot about this writer right now. Yes. Um, I think the logic here is, why can you root for Henry Hill? And all of these gangsters and all of this world of like crime fiction and crime movies who are men, why can you root for them and just think like, oh, well, it, that's just the genre. And like, yeah, obviously they do bad things, but like, let's get the money. Like, why can you, you know, Walter White, whatever. Why can you project yourself so easily there? But, you know, and, and I think the comment he's making is one about the uh, fear of female power. Now, my problem with that is... Well, yeah, yeah. There, there's a few things there that you said that I want to unpack. And uh, I think a big part of it is, uh, in this particular instance, w- w- like, one of the things when I was watching the movie that me and my wife said to each other was like, I'm kind of rooting for Peter Dinklage here because <laughs> right. because they, they never really give uh, uh, Marla... Like any kind of redeeming, uh, sort of anything, right? At least right. Peter Dinklage has like a personal connection to the story, and like what she did is fucked up, right? I mean, he's a bad person, but he's the victim here, even though he wants to fucking murder her in right. horrible ways, like and has likely murdered several several people prior to the when the story takes place. Yes, I mean uh, we, uh, he's introduced in a very kind of cartoonishly fashion of like you know. Cutting off someone's fingers or something—I don't remember. But oh, he, and and I mean, Peter Dinklage is so good at this. Like, right, right. I, I mean, uh, he, yeah, he's perfect for the role. But that's and, a question the movie's asking you: is why is why are you able to overlook his obvious criminality and evilness? Yes, and lack of care for human life, but you're not able to do that with Rosamund Pike, who you want to strangle throughout the whole movie. Is I it mean, just I, because of misogyny? I mean, I think the movie might be kind of making that case, but I also think I think one of the the big differences here, uh, and I'm I'm not making an argument one way or the other uh, uh, as far as is she worse than uh, Henry Hill, uh, but y- you know, in in those movies, the crimes feel a little more victimless. Uh, not. No, People they're are not dying all over the place. But they're mobsters that are dying, right? They're they're robbing banks and stores, and and they're ripping off the man or whatever, you know. Uh, or the people they're killing are people who like ran their mouths off, or you know, crossed the mob. Whereas specifically in this movie, she's taking advantage of old people of the uh, who cannot. Yeah. 
care for themselves? No, no. Most uh, of the time, I think they can take care of themselves. I, that which well, makes it even worse. It's, some it's of the not time, so yeah. much that they're that they that they're completely um, you know without with uh, without any uh, ability to take care of themselves. It's that she specifically preys on or gets these doctors to pawn off yes. these. These people uh, are, might be borderline or right, or, but she specifically because she doesn't care. She doesn't care if they need help or not. She cares about right how much money they make. So and maybe the longer people, they live, the more money she can make. So she actually doesn't want them too sick. Yes, yeah, which that's is something true. you learn like in the first twenty minutes. That's what I'm saying, and I think the reason why this thematic gesturing doesn't work for me is specifically that because yes. the whole time of the movie. I'm on Diane Weist's side. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's something to the idea. I want to see Diane Weist get the upper hand in that situation. And uh, in fact, the kind of the way uh, that it ends wasn't like as, as satisfying as I hoped it would be because of that specific reason. Yeah. And so then that got me thinking on a different wavelength. Well, so I want to go back to the idea before you, okay, before you keep going, uh, the idea that it, generally speaking, in these like crime movies and mobster movies, they they are portrayed as kind of victimless. Um, right. Even the victims usually kind of have it coming, right? You you revel in it. You're like, oh yeah, fucking stab him some more, Joe Pesci. Right. Uh, it, it's a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas this is like literally, there is a wall of of faces to these victims. There right. is a wall of pictures that gives each and every. The, you know, person she's taken advantage of a face. So, you know, maybe they are trying to say something with that. I don't, I don't know if it's intentional, but um, it's interesting. Right, right. So then that, that gets me to my, my other thing. So I thought there's, there's, this movie's either working on two levels as far as this goes, the subtext, either it's saying the one thing, which is like the reason you can deal with Henry Hill and you can't deal with, with, uh, with Rosamund Pike's character in this film is because of the male fear or society's, you know, inherent misogyny of female power. And isn't that fucked up? And we're going to subvert that. And that's what the movie's about, which to me, interesting, but ultimately doesn't work as an idea because of specifically the nature of her crimes. Yeah. Um, because I'm sorry, I care about elder abuse more than like female representation in crime fiction. Um, <laughs> the other the other thing though is it might be working on like a 4D chess level where it's playing into that idea and it's saying that abuses of power are often masked behind um performative uh yeah, so, representation so, or performative quote unquote wokeness yeah. and that we and that we should be cognizant to not let people off the hook based upon you know, I hate using all these words that are so Twitter identity politics. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, is it is it that which that's fucking crazy? If that's the level this movie's working on, that's bold as fuck. And and no, that's a conversation nobody wants to have right now. And I'm almost like even more for it if that's the case. I don't think it is though. I I don't either, but I don't. I don't think that necessarily makes it irrelevant um, because I think no, it's a valid read, but, and I think that, uh, I think that no matter what, no matter if that is the, the um, justifications of the movie, that is definitely the justifications of the character. Right. Which is why this is 
an interesting film. It is so uh, 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 character driven. And I mean, a lot of that is, you know, the performances selling it, mm-hmm. um, which again is why I think it stood out more than the average sort of Netflix original to me. Like it's, it it's, got me thinking for a long time afterward. I was like, re- and I still have not like the dust hasn't settled as far as where I stand on those specific issues. I know that I like it as a movie, and I know yeah. that it like works. Well, it's also as a like crime film. just really stylish and generally a lot of fun. Like right. it is, it is a you know if you like the crime genre, there is a lot of uh, uh, good times to be had here. Right, and and when. You know, when I say a movie is fun, like, sometimes people think that means comedy or whatever, which, which, I mean, this has some, you know, kind of funny moments, but, like, it's just reveling in itself. It is just, like, fully enjoying the genre. Like, again, Mm -hmm. there's a fucking shootout in a nursing home. (laughs) Like, you know, like... That's one of the sillier, that's one of the sillier, less impressive moments of the movie. But, yeah, I know what you mean. Well, and that, but on top of that, there are just some really, uh, like, one of my favorite scenes of the movie is when, uh, she gets visited by Peter Dinklage's lawyer, and there's just so, sort of this lawyer off, mm-hmm. and it just tells you so much about both her character and Peter Dinklage's character, and also this great little, like, character part of this fucking scumbaggy lawyer. That's just, that, uh, that scene in particular is like a great, like, if you were running an acting class or something and you wanted people to, like, read totally. off a scene. Yeah. yeah. Like, that is Because they're just really firing. It is, it yeah. is, like, that is one of the high points of the movie That's for That's Chris Messina, right? As the lawyer? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and who there, I also really enjoyed in Suicide Squad. Who, did, who was he in Suicide Squad? He was Zeus. Oh, you mean, uh, uh, no, you mean Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's right. I, yes, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely in his wheelhouse of kind of like, uh, uh, comedic schlock evil, uh, sleaze bags. Like. But I mean, I think that's what I enjoyed about this movie so much is yes, all the crime stuff is there. All the genre stuff is there. There is a lot to, I, I think just the setting is very unique and interesting, but there's also just plenty of scenes that give the actors stuff to chew on you know there's there's a lot of these scenes where they're playing mental chess with each other and and pushing boundaries and like there's a pretty good one with uh diane weist Mm -hmm. there's a a a really good uh, you know showdown between uh peter dinklage and rosamund pike that is like really fun to watch like that's what i really enjoyed about this movie is it's just really watchable yeah, it's really, really well made. It's very well directed. I think it's more well directed than well written. I agree. Even though I think the dialogue is very good. But I think it kind of putters out a little towards the end just on a plotting level. And, of course, there's these thematic things that I'm just not sure about. I would need to see more by this director if he keeps writing his own material to see if this is something he keeps stumbling into or if it if he in fact is if working it's a little on a, more if it's if it's even more smarter than i realize more smarter yeah um but yes i i give the movie a b plus and but it's a very enthusiastic one and i think people should see it um rosamund pike is she's something else man yeah she's so good uh yeah when we were watching it uh, my wife was just like good for her for just doing the shit she wants to do mm-hmm. and fucking knocking it out of the park when she does it like 
Damn, she is so good. Yeah, I think a B plus is is right on where this movie should be. Isaac Gonzalez has now become like a lesbian icon. I mean, I so. get it. <laughs> yeah. When I Almost see a movie, immediately, when huh? I see a movie and I want to know sort of like what people are thinking about it without going to IMDb or something like that, I'll just look it up on Twitter and then just go to recent instead of top and just mm. read the people who's who's talking about it at the moment. And like every fourth tweet was a lesbian tweet just being like, Isaac Gonzalez is my forever. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, um, almost immediately in the movie, I was like, they're fucking, right? And then they fuck. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, it it's very, uh, she's great. Yeah. Um, fun movie. Lot to talk about. Uh, let's go ahead and get into the the streaming homework, which is uh, Queen and Slim. And this is the film that you assigned me, uh, and this is streaming now on HBO Max, directed by Melina Mansukas, uh, who comes from the world of music videos. I looked at her MDIB, um, and that is mostly what she's done prior to this, is a lot of music videos. Uh, the movie certainly has a look, um, and it's written by Lena Waithe, uh, who some people might remember. She was a character in Master of None. She was in Ready Player One. She's a comedian. Um, well, and she, um, she also like, uh, it pioneers this, um, this, this, I think it's called the blacklist. It's, it's like a, a program that gets, you know, um, underrepresented voices gets their shit looked at. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and she, I, I'm mostly familiar with it through like Twitter and stuff, but you know, she like is responsible for getting a lot of like black stories um, made into movies and stuff right now. So I, I think that's, uh, you know, another really cool thing she's doing. Absolutely. Uh, so this is also sort of a crime film. Um, I mean, very much so. I, it's about a couple. Uh, we have. Uh, Slim, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who we just talked about in Judas and the Black Messiah. And we have Queen, played by Jodie Turner-Smith. Um, that's actually I don't think they actually give their real names in the movie. In the uh, movie. It does at the very end. Okay, right. In, in like a new in like one of the news reports, it mentions their their actual names, but for the majority of the movie, they don't say. They, it, don't they, they never say it on screen. Yeah, um, and they meet on a on a one off Tinder date. Uh, Queen is a lawyer. We know that uh, based on the little bit of banter we get by them um, at the beginning of the film, their dinner date. Uh, and we don't know exactly what Daniel Kaluuya's character does. No, we do. He works at a grocery store. So there's kind of, that. that's interesting in and of itself is there's a like pretty big class difference between the two of them immediately, um, even though they're uh, both black and they both are the same age. They come from what seems to be Pretty different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, on their way home, she, he, you know, he's ready to take her home. And he's gentlemanly. Nobody's, you know, having sex with anybody that night. And they get stopped by a police officer. And things escalate really fast with this uh, white police officer who, unbeknownst to them, had recently been involved in a scandal of, of uh, killing a black unarmed person as happens way too often um all the time yeah. and uh they get into the scuffle uh and it leads to the police officer shooting at uh queen who is trying to like 
pull out her phone to videotape what's going on with Daniel Kaluuya. And he re- responds um, kind of naturally and, and grabs the gun from the police officer and ends up shooting the police officer uh, out of self-defense. Uh, this puts them on the lam and uh, Queen, uh, because of her background in law, is kind of like informing him of like what their options are. And she tells him that she has an uncle in New Orleans. So they're trying to get there and they're trying to stay um, as discreet as possible as they're traveling from Ohio to New Orleans and then later from New Orleans to Florida. And while they're on the road, they learn that the a dash cam of the police officer caught all of this and they end up on YouTube and they end up on TV news reports and they sort of become folk folk heroes for having killed this cop who apparently had killed a cop or killed a killed an unarmed black person um, before meeting them. Mm-hmm. And it, their profile keeps growing and growing and growing as they're trying to, you know, uh, stay hidden and they find themselves in all these interesting situations where, you know, some pe- everyone knows who they are, but some people are okay with with helping them, and some people are not, and it's sometimes hard to tell. And that's kind of the tension of the story. You know, again, uh, the elevator for pitch for this movie is Black Bonnie and Clyde, and right. yeah. and I think Although, I think I th- well, no, I think what this movie does. Uh, that's really interesting to me is it plays with the idea of Bonnie and Clyde as folk heroes because they were, uh, they were, they were seen as these folk heroes for, for robbing, you know, banks and, and robbing these stores and stuff. And I think this movie, uh, during the depression. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this movie plays with that in really interesting ways by not making them just, you know, these bank robbers, but by playing with the social issues of the day and, and what would, what would make, you know, uh, uh, criminal, uh, you know, romantic folk heroes, you know, nowadays in the black community. Um, so yes, it's, that's a little bit of an oversimplification of it, but mm-hmm. I think it plays with that idea in some really cool and interesting ways. Right. And of course this, this came out in, 2019 was probably shot in 2018. So this was before the George Floyd thing. This is before the major demonstrations we had over the summer. So all of that obviously amplifies the context here. Not that this is something that was never present before that point. I mean, it's a constant conversation. There's a million stories just like this. There's a reason beyond just people being locked up and bored uh, why George Floyd was a boiling point. Like, you know, right. like this has been happening time and time again. And the more footage we see and the more fucking obvious that it gets, the more and more pissed off uh, uh, people, people get. are getting and, right. and justifiably so. So, of course, it absolutely makes sense that somebody, someone, you know, who's frustrated with with this uh, uh, and in trying to portray it and, and, and use, you know, art to turn something very ugly into maybe something that could can help some people. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me at all that this would happen before what happened this last summer. Uh, I mean, you know, be, I mean, it's just been boiling for such a long right. time. I mean, we, we've had Fruitvale Station that came out not very long ago. And I mean, there's. 
there's these stories are continually relevant because they're continually happening. Um, yeah, and just the more, you know, the more and more we come to the realization that this is the black experience in America. Mm-hmm. And the more and more we see black stories getting told, like, like, yeah, you know, this is, this is something we have to fucking reckon with. Right. Um, yeah, I, I agree. However, I wish this particular story had been told a little better. Um, I, I, I think there's some, some kind of similar, but not as problematic as, as the last film. I think there's some very interesting filmmaking going on. Mm-hmm. I love the way the movie looks. I love sort of the, the soaking in of the, like, you know, the drive by vistas and taking in sort of the Americana of it all. And like, you know, at one point they go to like a blues bar and, and that's very cinematic. The movie's cinematic as fuck. Yeah, um, it's shot incredibly well. It is right. Uh, yeah, I do the, think the fact that the director came, comes from music videos makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of uh, visual. visual language. Yeah. yeah, it's incredibly visual. Um, and and I think that the, the the performances by both the leads are really really good, and they're owning their characters. But there's a lot of times when I don't believe them, regardless. Um, I had a hard time by about the middle point in the movie when they just kept making worse and worse decisions and sometimes needlessly. So um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I felt that as well. Um, I, but to the point where I was so distracted that I wasn't mm. thinking about the racial politics as much anymore. And I was just like, this is just the worst Tinder day ever. Like, that's what this movie is. It's like the worst Tinder date of all time. Um, I, 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 so I came to the realization that, that. I mean, when they stop on the side of the road, when they're supposed to be on the lam and they've had a couple of close calls already, they stop on the side of the road and they're just like, let's go ride horses in this person's property. Well, so I, I think the part of the point is, uh, in in the way that Bonnie and Clyde achieved their financial independence and their financial freedom by breaking the law, mm-hmm. I think I think that and I'm I agree with you that I don't think this always works, but I think you know they're trying to say that when they're on the run, when they're kind of living every day in every moment. They are more free than they ever have been. They're more free to be themselves, and they are they are living more life than they might have ever lived up to that point. I, I think that is a big part of what the movie's trying to say. I agree and, that that is the intention. There is some dialogue that kind of leads you to in that direction, but I don't feel like it's always earned. And I feel I. Like- agree with you there i i think there are some points where it it feels unnatural and clunky yeah and and episodic uh, which is fine with a road movie that's kind of how these things work um is you you sort of you, you build your set pieces based on destinations but sometimes it feels like the screenplay sort of making itself up as it goes well i think i i think the movie to me, while I was watching it, I think the movie really struggles with tension. Um, I, I think the first, like, 20 minutes are crackerjack. I think they are, like, uh, it just, I think, it, like, the conversation on their date. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 
I think is really good in just kind of everything up to the inciting incident. Yeah. Uh, and that included, I think, is like, is really well done. I think the movie... I, I agree. It, Actually, at that point, and this happens every once in a while with something I know is going to go into a genre direction. Sometimes I'm just like, can we just have like the cool black version of Before Midnight with these two? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Or Before uh, uh, I also like kind of thought that like uh, um, True Romance came to mind. Right. Yeah. Um, Obviously that, uh, like Badlands, Gun Crazy, everything in that tradition. I th- I do think um, – so this – I'm kind of conflicted here because this movie is intentionally not reveling in the violence and I think that is it's important. It's actually not that violent overall. Yeah. I mean there's scenes of violence that are pretty shocking but over the runtime, it's not really about that. No, but I also think that this movie could have leaned into the genre conventions a little bit more. Um, uh, not that it, you know, has to be super violent, but, um, but that's what I mean. I feel like after that sort of first scene and up to including like sort of their first encounter on the road, um, there's like really good playing with the tension. Um, but then there are these moments that just like kind of don't make sense and deflate everything that sort of happens and it's it's kind of hard for them to build that back up i think the movie overall is a little long in the tooth also and that doesn't necessarily help um i mean it's very breathy it's like taking in the scenery it's not it's there's a lot of elbow room in this in the script which i think is fine and i sort of encourage that in filmmaking generally but i think for this type of thing it just lets the tension sag a little too much yeah, and, and I just feel like the movie has a hard time picking that back up uh, because it's so interested in doing all of these things. It's so interested in um, making them folk heroes and cre- trying, you know, creating this conversation that I, I think is really good and, and, and smart to have. But I, th- I think there's just a little too many plates spinning and not all of them work all the time. I think there's a struggle here with tone. Yeah. Um, I think that's a major problem. And I know uh, Waith, uh, the writer, is a comedian. And I think there's a few scenes where she tries to infuse that in there where it really kind of clings pretty hard against the subject matter and what we've seen up to that point. And with the direction of, of the film, there might be like kind of a competing voices between the director and the writer. I feel like, yeah, I felt that a little bit too. There's like some, I, there's some scenes, and I don't, I'm not saying this flippantly, but there's some scenes that are kind of black exploitationy, and maybe knowingly, but again, if that's the case, the director's not in on it. Yeah, because there, there's also scenes that are are definitely trying to say more than that, and and I agree. I think, and I think you can do that. Here's the thing: it's like if you wanted to do. Bonnie and Clyde as a modern exploitation film with this social commentary, you can do that in theory. You just got to thread a really fine needle. And I just don't think that that this movie does that. I think that it, it kind of, you know, it's like if if the movie's a car, it's pulling into a really narrow uh, driveway. It kind of bangs around the, the edges a little bit to get to the end. And it's just 
ultimately, I don't think it works. I, I, I think it's interesting and I think it's, it's a decent watch, but especially coming off of Judas and the Black Messiah into this, which is not fair for this movie. Um, yeah. I well, just that- couldn't help but see so many times when I was just like, I'm not buying this. This scene doesn't make any sense. These characters wouldn't be doing this. Honestly, I, Queen is crazy. Just leave. Like, you know, like <laughs> she just makes nothing but bad decisions throughout the entire film. She and there's, but there's lovely stuff in the film too. There's some really great like charisma between the actors and the, again, the filmmaking is gorgeous. I, I just, yeah, I just ultimately I'm like, I think this is just like a really well made bad film. I I wouldn't even go that far, but I do I. I think it falls short of what it could have been and and even what it's trying to be. Right. Um I I cuz I agree with you. I I just I wish the rest of the movie had been as solid as like the first half hour. Um right. cuz it and I don't even think it's a problem that it's more of a road trip movie than than a crime movie, but No, that's it, fine. It, it just never That's it, one of like, the better things about it. Yeah, I just I I agree with you. I think this movie struggles the most with tone and in like and the set pieces. It's actually funny. This usually and maybe it's just has to do with the type of writer she is. It's usually finds itself um easier or more naturally in scenes with less tension. It's it's like yeah. it's the stuff in between the set pieces that's more engaging. When they when the rubber hits the road and you got to like have some stuff happen. Um, that's when I'm always like, uh, this doesn't feel real to me. This doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. Um, and ultimately, unfortunately, I think, you know, like the sort of payoff at the end feels kind of shortchanged because mm-hmm. I also think it's a little too obvious, uh, uh, kind of, you know, kind of how it goes down. Um, I, I I kind of wanted there to be more of a surprise, I guess. Um, but it was like, well, duh. I mean, you know what I mean? Right. I don't know. And, and I'm trying to, to say this without being too spoilery. But um, I, think I just felt, oh, felt like the conclusion was a little too obvious. I don't know. but uh, Right. I think a film that kind of approaches this type of thing in a, in a fairly different way, but I think in a more successful way, Besides all of the genre fiction that we, you know, we were talking about, um, but something that is like trying to tackle an issue and also have fun with the genre stuff and pay it off in a road movie sort of way is Thelma and Louise. There, there's a movie where I think, you know, they're not bad guys. Like you're rooting for them. You totally see why they had to do the thing they did and why they're on the lamb. But like along the way, they learn like to survive. And I think that's another problem with Queen and Slim is these characters are incredibly passive. The things yeah. are always happening to them. They never, even if, if this is a fictional story, you could do whatever you want with these characters. Even if like, like for instance, there's a scene where they have to get a radiator fixed and they get ripped off by this, by this, uh, this mechanic because he has all the power in the situation. Cause he could call the cops. What? I almost want at that point in the film for them to be like, fuck it, you know, point the gun at him and be like, you're going to do this for free. Yeah, well, exactly. Like we and and we get that 
again, more at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like they're sort of juggling this idea of like how 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 much are we going to break bad? Right. Uh, and it seems like they're like settling into it. Like, mm-hmm. and then they just sort of like, they don't really do anything for the rest of the movie except run, which is fine. I think, but I, yeah, I think they, the story is trying to, I think one of the things that the movie's trying to do is it's like, it's trying to like create the fiction around who they are based upon the media yeah. scandal is very different from who they really are. And they're sort of running away from that as much as they're running away from the police. Um, I get that that's like what it's going for, but ultimately, yeah, they, I think they come off as just very passive characters and they always, and I feel like, and, and I, I wonder if that's at times trying to make them too likable for too much of the movie. You know, like I think we've are, are we trying? Their, we've already earned that. We don't need exactly. To, yeah. yeah, like we understand the circumstances, and I'm not saying like they have to go become psycho killers, and no. they they have to go turn into natural born killers by the middle of the movie. But I I did want them to have a little bit better of a survival instinct, right? Um, because again, I mean, kind of a lot of them escaping scraps is is either just sort of dumb luck or um. Or based off that idea that that people either believe in them or or they don't, right. and um, and honestly, I think that's where the more interesting stuff of the movie is is sort of the fiction around them. I like a lot about this movie, but it never it never totally came together in in a satisfying way. It, it all mm-hmm. it feels a little unfinished or something. I don't know. Yeah. I do want to give a shout out to Flea, who showed yeah. up at the end of the film, uh, married to Chloe Sevigny in the film. Um, I, I'm always pro Flea randomly showing up in a movie that I'm watching. Totally. He's done it in a lot of them. <laughs> Doing a like Southern Florida accent. It was, it was some stuff. All right. So the film we're going to be watching next week is another crime film, actually. Uh, and it is the movie Shopping, starring Jude Law. This is the first film by Paul W.S. Anderson, who would later go on to make um, video game adapted schlock like Mortal Kombat, as well as stuff like uh, Three Musketeers and uh, Event Horizon. This was oh, his boy. This was his breakthrough indie hit that made him a thing. I've always been curious to see it, uh, specifically based on who he would become. Um yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it came out in 1994. So this is pre-Mortal Kombat. Uh, and if anybody wants to say anything about that movie or any of the films we talked about on this episode, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media on social media at Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. You can read my reviews that I do weekly for the Idaho State Journal by Googling um, Idaho State Journal Movies. That'll take you directly to the page where all my stuff is. Um, And you can also follow me individually on uh, social media, both on Instagram and on Twitter at BC Cassidy. Uh, Keith, what is your stuff? 
You can follow me on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, I have been watching X Files all the way through from the mm-hmm. beginning, so you can uh, you can follow my random thoughts and observations by following hashtag X Files Watch because <laughs> um, I have nothing else in my life. It's so empty. Uh, you can also <laughs> follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. And uh, you can follow my art account at Sticky Note Aesthetic on Instagram. Yes, yes, you can do those things. Uh, you can also uh, give us a star rating and a one-sentence review over at uh, iTunes or Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, whichever one you listen to us on. Uh, please give us a star rating and a one-sentence review. It will help people uh, see the show and bump us up in the algorithm and all that good stuff. And I want to give a little bit of a shout-out here at the end for a friend of the show, Sean uh, Sean Walters. He started a new podcast. He's talking about B-movies, uh, public domain stuff, you, a lot of stuff you can watch on Tubi, uh, which we've been watching a lot of things. Uh, called Dragons, Ghouls, and Spaceships, and I've uh, listened to the first few episodes, and it's a lot of fun. Um, he just kind of, like, describes the film, uh, you know, as he's watching it, sort of, and it helps if you know him, but I, I think it's still a lot of, it's it's really entertaining to sort of uh, hear his uninitiated response to these old beep these old B movies. And they actually just did an episode. He brought on a guest to talk about Chud, which is a movie we reviewed last week. Yeah. So, and I think they're doing Chud too here soon. So check out dragon schools and spaceship. Um, I think it's on Spotify. That is it. That's the show. Cause there are two types of people in the world. The people who take and those getting took predators and prey lions and lambs. Bye.